Welcome back to The Aryan and the Jew, a podcast I have already started to think of as the Alexander Bard Sessions. My name is Aaron Flam. I'm a comedian of the darker variety based in Sweden. Apart from this podcast, I do a podcast in Swedish called Deconstructive Criticism. And if you're interested in me, you can find my oeuvre at my webpage, www.aaronflam.com. That's Aaron with one A and Flam with one M. My Twitter account is at Aaron Flam, and sometimes on Facebook, although not for the coming 25 days since I am blocked, I am Aaron Flam. Alexander Bard, my partner in crime, can be followed on Twitter under his nom de guerre, at Bardissimo. That's Bardissimo with two S's. Or on Facebook under his real name, Alexander Bard. Apart from an earlier life as a pop star and a TV personality, he is the author of several books and a philosopher in his own right, focusing on the melding of man and technology. Alexander was the first person I could think of to book as the first guest of the first episode of my own podcast, Deconstructive Criticism, because he was the first person I saw in official Sweden who dared to be honest. He was booked on a Swedish state television show called My Truth, and he was very forthcoming. His honesty made me realize that Alexander is best enjoyed in long format. We started this podcast to talk about the Swedish election in English, but it will mostly be Alexander talking about his new book, which is interesting enough in itself, as you'll discover. But I would like to take this little moment before the dia monologue begins to talk a bit about what is going on here in Sweden, or the upside down, as I have started to call it. We Swedes now get a feel of how Americans must have felt in the election between Trump and Hillary, or what a Brit must have felt when asked to choose between the EU and Brexit. Swedes are now faced with a choice between the traditional parties, who have all failed miserably, lied to us, continue lying to us, and refuse to even admit to the problems that are plain for anyone with eyes to see, or vote against them. But that means voting for a party that up until very recently was neo-Nazi. And I wouldn't exactly say that they have dealt with their past. But then again, nor have the Social Democrats, who supported Nazi Germany during the war while clinging to the lie that Sweden was neutral during the war. A lot of the problems Sweden is facing today can be traced back to not dealing with the guilt of the war. If you're abroad, you can't hear it, but the silence here is huge right now. It's always big, the silence, but it has never been this big. The lack of sound is truly deafening. It is the sound of the Swedish consensus shifting. I recognize it from the closing of the border in 2015. There is no real debate, hardly any discussion. It is just a big, silent shift. Like a glacier carving into the sea. Sweden has never offered any surprises, politically or otherwise, but especially not politically. Sweden is social democratic, it was born out of social democracy, and it seemed until just a few years ago that would always be the case. But a little over a year ago, on 1st of May, Workers' Day 2017, I started a little project labeled Crush Socialism. And since then, things have become increasingly absurd. Sweden has real problems. Retired people not being able to live on their pensions, unemployment with a clear ethnic divide, a failing welfare state, medical access is dropping, available treatments as well, schools are failing, violent crime is skyrocketing, so are gang rapes, Islamism has a firm foothold in the country, Islamist-controlled parts of towns, and have infiltrated established political parties. But from watching the coverage of the election or the debates, you wouldn't think so. They seem focused on completely different issues. And I don't believe it to be a conspiracy, rather incompetence, a lack of correct information, and an inability to deal with real problems after 250 years of peace and relative prosperity. But this is what has happened just the last week or so. And in a little more than a week's time, I hope to declare victory over socialism in Sweden. Victory over socialism won't be declared on Facebook, though since I have been blocked for 30 days. Like a medieval court or the trial of Joseph K. in Kafka, I have not been informed of the charges against me, just that there have been charges against me. I cannot appeal, since I have been blocked from making comments. When I log in, I see a message that reads, quote, Together we can counter fake news. We are removing fake accounts and are cooperating with fact-checkers. End quote. 
They go on to inform me that they remove accounts, listen to, quote, signals from their community, and in, quote, some countries work with, quote, third-party fact-checkers. Content they considered, quote, false is given a lower priority in the feed. I have no doubt that there are leftist activist groups mass-reporting political opponents, but I have no proof. And I don't know what, if any, rule I've broken. I have posted links to my own material, which I don't think fake. They are my opinions, and I might be wrong, but they are still real opinions that I hold. And I've tried to share a half-hour satirical animated film about the political situation in Sweden. The genius behind this film is Jens Gahnman, an author, satirist, and troubadour. He published it on YouTube, but it was taken down within an hour and labeled hate speech. It is not hate speech. It is a satirical description of Swedish officialdom with authentic quotes from cartoon caricatures of our so-called leaders in politics and media. A blistering account of the incidents and policy consequences hidden from us and lied about by our own establishment. The film's name is, quote, to make it right, end quote. A catchphrase added after every quoted lie. But since it was perhaps too honest... It was taken down and labeled hate speech, to make it right. See, that's the joke, that every lie is for your own good, to make it right. A friend's teenage son shared it on Facebook and got suspended as well, so that might be the cause. Facebook is a private company and may do as they please, but currently Facebook's market penetration in Sweden exceeds 50%. It is, in other words, a very large public forum. It is the largest public forum for political discussion in the country. A forum I am now shut out from. When I tried to pay for marketing of the latest episode of Deconstructive Criticism, my other podcast on Instagram, to sort of make up for being shut out of Facebook, the app told me that, quote, this promotion can't be created because the link has been blocked by our security systems, end quote. None of this comes as a surprise. Jonathan Lundqvist, head of Reporters Without Borders in Sweden and previous guest on my podcast, Deconstructive Criticism, warned about the development such as this on said podcast and in a large article in the Daily Dagens Nyheter. Swedish government officials, as well as mainstream media, which is subsidized by the government, have held talks with Google, specifically about its subsidiary YouTube and gotten channels closed. Other times, anonymous people at Google decide there is no chance of appeal. And I know it is easy to brush this off as conspiracy or paranoia, but then the Swedish state television publicly branded Hanif Bali, an outspoken critic of the Swedish system, an alt-right collaborator. It is pure character assassination. They claim, and I shit you not, that his tweeting is a threat to Western liberal democracy. That Hanif Bali, by retweeting a meme of himself as a character from the computer game Call of Duty at war with Dagens Nyheter, the daily I mentioned earlier, is threatening the entire Western alliance. The conspiracy theory Swedish state television weave out of the exceptionally leading question, quote, is Hanif Bali a threat to democracy, end quote, is completely insane. The reasoning behind it is that he might be inspired by alt-right memes and thus enabling the alt-right to take over the world and usher in global apartheid. To prove it, they interview the leaders of the Swedish alt-right movement who have never been happier because they were tiny and want attention and SVT, state television, willingly gives it to them to build up a threat that isn't there. Extremists always want to eliminate the center, the gray areas in between extremes where most of life takes place. They do this so that nothing remains but the final battle, pure and untainted by doubt. Swedish state television don't want to face Hanif with arguments or critical questions. They want to brand him a Nazi and be done with it. For that, they need Nazis. And Nordic alt-right willingly obliged, win-win for Swedish state television and the Nordic alt-right, lose-lose for Hanif Bali and democracy. The thing is that Swedish state television has already written an article about the incident which caused the scandal between Dagens Nyheter and Hanif Bali, which the same state television then use out of context, in contradiction to their own article from a week before, to make Hanif Bali into someone who provokes Breivik-type violence against members of the press. 
By associating Bali to the alt-right, they are implying that he is a Nazi and a racist. If you're wondering what kind of Swede would name their kid Hanif Bali, the answer is no one. Bali came to Sweden as a refugee from Iran when he was a child. Hanif Bali is a moderate, an outspoken one, and merciless on Twitter, but he stands for a pluralistic, secular, democratic state. He is not even anti-immigration. He's just against this complete failure of an immigration system. As a former immigrant himself, he would know. Instead, he is vilified in state media and media close to the government, thrown under the bus by his coalition partners, and not even half-heartedly defended by his own party. Hanif Bali has also been a frequent guest on my podcast, Deconstructive Criticism, just like Jens Gahnman. And I know this sounds crazy enough as it is, but then, just three days later, Swedish state television's clusterfuck on Hanif, they have a documentary about the alt-right in Sweden. The angle is, and I quote, are they a threat to democracy? End quote. Swedish state television have interviewed Richard Spencer in America. They have had a reporter gone undercover for six months in the Swedish group, with nothing more to show for it than a few inappropriate drinking songs and cheers. But the only evidence to prove that this group is an enormous threat is provided by the group themselves. In the interviews, no attempt to contradict them or disprove them is made. And most embarrassing of all, when they present this to the Swedish FBI, Sapo, and ask them if they think that the Nordic alt-right is a threat to democracy, the analyst says, no, they're not an immediate threat to democracy. The analyst says, nope. They're not an immediate threat to democracy. But at the end of the documentary, they still manage to edit in yours truly, me and Alexander Bard, my co-partner in this podcast, The Aryan and the Jew. The footage was filmed at an event this summer, at a political meet in Sweden, open to the public and anyone interested in politics of any ideology. The audience consisted of everyone and anyone. Among the visitors were the Swedish alt-right, followed by Swedish state television's camera team. They edit in one of the old writers asking me a question, and Alexander speaking about freedom of speech and memes. Uncommented, without explaining what it is you're seeing, to make it seem like me and Alexander are some kind of alt-right meet, that we are leaders of the alt-right movement, and that it's big. I cannot speak for Alexander, but I am not alt-right, and even though I cannot speak for Alexander, I know he's not alt-right, he's a gay philosopher, and I'm a liberal, secular, atheist Jew, and the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. I have publicly many times said that I think Swedish state television should be closed down because it is weird that we are forced to pay for our own indoctrination. I have criticized Swedish state television for covering up Sweden's support of Nazi Germany during World War II. Instead, They continue to claim that they were neutral. I have criticized them for lying about narcotics, Islamism, feminism, and the Israel-Palestinian conflict. I have accused them of being leftist. All these claims have been supported by proof, mostly by Swedish state television themselves. But the response they give officially has been silence. And it is still silence, just a passive, aggressive, unmotivated and uncommented, indecent edit in a failed documentary about an imaginary Nazi threat. I'm a person who has criticized <clears throat> I'm a person who has criticized Swedish state television for being anti-Semitic, sexist, incompetent, and completely incapable of being objective. And now they respond by once again proving that they are wholly incapable of remaining objective, or for that matter, competent. Real journalists who have worked hundreds of man-hours on a project that didn't pan out would let it go, or publish that nothing was found. Swedish state television instead uses it to prove my critique of them. That they are now calling a metrosexual hillbilly, that's Jens Gahnman, a Kurdish dwarf lord, that's Hanif Bali, a homosexual philosopher pop star, that's Alexander, and the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, that's me, Nazis, just prove that they have completely lost it. I should be mad that my own state television that I grew up with have worked at and paid for mostly against my will, that's true, but that it tries to label me a Nazi should make me livid. But I am not, nor am I surprised. This is an obvious sign of desperation. They are panicking. 
making me even more right than before that these people are not to be trusted, especially not in a crisis. They are biased and care more for themselves than their viewers, who also pay their salaries, and they know it, and they know that their viewers can see it. By now, the cracks in the facade of the famous welfare state is there for everyone to see. The Social Democrats have been accused of the opposition of dirty tricks. Their election material in Arabic, disseminated in immigrant-dense areas, lie about the moderate party as well as the Sweden Democrats, saying that they will outlaw halal and close down mosques. The Social Democrats have long been suspected of importing immigrants and making them dependent on subsidies as voting cattle. This adds to the distrust, even though the Social Democrats claim it is an isolated incidence of low-level functionaries. True is that several local candidates were forced to resign from the race and the party. And this happened in at least five cities. According to Financial Times, false claims had been posted in Arabic and Somali. The lies were among others that right-wing parties were accusing Muslim parents of crime to take their children away from them and that they wanted to remove citizenship from anybody who arrived in Sweden after 1970. All untrue. But in the end... None of this will matter, because come 9th of September, the Sweden Democrats, the upstart little Nazi party that could, will probably become the biggest party in Sweden. The Social Democrats and all established parties will be voted out. And it will have nothing to do with me, or Alexander, Hanif Bali, Jens Gahnman, or the alt-right. Partly it has to do with the fact, partly it has... <clears throat> Partly it has to do with the fact that no one has been more vilified by the establishment as much as the Sweden Democrats. And as such, voting for the Sweden Democrats is the only way to show your disapproval. But mostly, they will be voted out for failing miserably with healthcare, with the education system, and with immigration, for covering it up, and for lying about it. Alexander Bard, the Aryan part of the podcast and the philosopher in-house, was talking about our earliest selves. We continue with the conversation from last week. It is the second sitting of the first day, and Alexander is relentless. Enjoy. Since you went there, and I've been trying to get there anyway, mm. let's talk about the Me Too movement in Sweden, because you started talking about it before I had to go on a pee break, and uh, we just had our first public suicide because of the Me Too. I said all along it would be a disaster, and people thought I was mad and started accusing me of kinds of things, like if I was one of the sexual perpetrators myself. But that's because I attacked the idea behind the Swedish Me Too movement rather than being a sexual perpetrator, which is, of course, more dangerous to the movement itself, because it was built on a lie from the very beginning. And that lie was that women are princesses. And men are perpetrators. And this has been state ideology. So there's ideology only the good woman and the evil man now. into that picture at all. It's not the inclusion of men in their totality. It's not the inclusion of women in their totality. It, it was an idea of women that doesn't exist. It doesn't look. Didn't look at all into the female shadow. I give you a perfect example of where it went wrong. It's like you discussed from the American perspective all the female victims that had been attacked by Harvey Weinstein mm -hmm. and whose careers were stopped. By Harvey Weinstein, because they were really talented, that because they didn't sleep with him, he would stop them from having careers. Okay? Nobody discussed all the mediocre women who slept with Harvey Weinstein and got starring roles in movies. No. You didn't want to see the other side of it. And the women who refused to take part in Me Too in America were the ones who saw the double play here and realized this is going to get really dangerous because sooner or later, you're going to have a story about a woman who was mediocre, made a career, and had a career built on Harvey Weinstein's support because she slept with him. Because women use opportunities all the time to get ahead of other women. They're really, really foul when they do this. So, so it's just the female shadow has to be integrated as much as the male shadow has to be integrated. The, the, the great insight from Carl Gustav Jung and forward is that any society that doesn't take into account the fullness and richness and the ambivalence of a man or a woman, for that matter, is bound on the wrong path. Okay? So... In Sweden, this was extreme because we didn't even have a Harvey Weinstein in Sweden. We didn't even have you know, a NASA or anything like that at all. The men who were accused of being the sexual perpetrators in Sweden either had not sexually harassed anybody, they were just tough guys in general, or they were completely innocent. And they were turning to material for a lynch mob 
that was running around on the streets. And again, you see uh, women running networks without a matriarchy, meaning they're young women full of their own egos. And what essentially happened was that they started these closed Facebook forums, threw everything out there, and like women do, when they don't have an older woman who can guide them towards the truth, they just think all the storytelling is on a par with all the other storytelling. Women are very, very, very uncomfortable confronting other women being wrong. So women doing groups is that they let like all the on, stories be on a par. Uh, so you can have one story about a really violent rape that might or might not have happened. And the next week you can have a story about, oh, I heard a man say nasty word once 30 years ago. And these two stories were held on a par. They were like equally valuable yes. to me too, which is weird. But, it's completely wrong. I mean, but, a, a real rape is really bad. Just hearing a nasty word is like, grow up. But girl, Sweden has been a more yeah. moral relativistic society for a very long time. Yes. Yes, we killed the church. Yeah. Yeah, the social democrats did, basically. Yeah. And we're the most secular country in the world. Yes. We're deeply pragmatic, philosophically speaking. We and care left, more about results than why And the left killed works. Marx. Yes. Karl Marx, after all, was phallic. He at least believed in some kind of a vision we should move towards, and without it, he knew we were lost. The Swedish social democracy died in the 1970s. It made its last attempt at sort of taking over the commercial sphere of society. People realized this is just going to go completely wrong. And after that, the social democracy of Sweden hasn't had a single idea what it's doing. That's exactly what was open to environmentalism, which in itself is a very feminine ideology, and feminism in its contemporary form. And that's exactly what those ideologies took over so Swedish social democracy made it incredibly weak yeah. and really, really corrupt. And this is essentially the government we have in Sweden today. And, and it's really wicked. And they would make it authoritarian in a heartbeat if they could. They have tried this year. They've tried to uh, repeal uh, the freedom of speech uh, that we have guaranteed in yes. our Bill of Rights, or our equivalent to a Bill of Rights at least. Yeah. Turning uh, Sweden into daycare center. But you're not supposed the to hear nasty words any longer. If somebody says a nasty word, they should be locked up in prison. Well, yes. get used and, to and, it. And this, uh, and what it's a very inf inf infantile society. Yes, and what yeah. Alexander is saying is completely true. Because one of the, the things that they tried to do was they tried to make it illegal on par with espionage and treason to talk shit about Sweden. Yeah. To a foreign audience. That was suddenly going to be made illegal. They've also made it illegal for Swedes to purchase sexual services even abroad. Yes. It's, it's completely mad. It's like Swedish law has to extend beyond our borders, which is again a sort of feminine fantasy that my power has no limitations. The first thing you learn in the phallic sphere, if you're a man, is that there are limits to your power, so please concentrate within those limits and you'll be powerful. But with the female fantasies that my idea of the world can extend everywhere and encapsulate absolutely everything, which is the magical fantasy of magical power. There are no limitations to my power. This is a very feminine idea, a very feminine fantasy. And it's, of course, the fantasy of the child. And it's also kind of strange that they think that they can uphold this law that would criminalize buying sex abroad in countries where it's legal yeah. because they have no army to back it up. Well, no. And of course, they don't see that then suddenly Sharia law from Saudi Arabia would be valid on Swedish territory. They don't even see that a Polish woman who comes to Sweden to, to conduct an abortion, which is perfectly legal in Sweden, might get arrested in Poland and sent to prison for the rest of her life because an abortion is illegal in Poland. So Polish will be valid on Swedish territory. They have no idea of where limits to territory are. Feminists don't realize this. They don't realize how dangerous they are to themselves because they're not in the phallic mode. They haven't been trained to think there are limitations to your power and you have to respect those limitations. And if you want to go beyond those limitations, you actually have to conquer foreign territory through military force. Otherwise, you know, you're not there. They don't realize that. So it's like setting up borders to then have a border to protect. It's an incredibly phallic exercise. It was essentially done by priests between the tribes to stay peaceful. And if the priest could not solve that, you had to go into war. And then the chieftain took over. So that's why ritual places, are the first cities in the world, the ritual places created at the borders between city, between, between tribes. So if you have two different tribes to settle in a river valley, you create a ritual place in between them, controlled by priests from both communities. 
These became the first cities. And once the priests are in place, you bring language there and you have a shared language between the villages and between the different tribes. And they, they, then you can create a bureaucracy that unifies the two. That means you can also create trade between the two villages. So traders are great. And that's also a male exercise, it's a phallic exercise. It's men who travel and trade. Then you get these ritual places, and the women are probably still stuck in the villages, giving birth to children, being run by a local matriarchy. And eventually then you have to bring the matriarchies into an understanding of each other. And actually, it is the matriarchs that are enemies of the enemy way more than the, than the, than the uh, uh, phallic chieftains are. Of course, because yeah. who sends men out into war? It is women who foster sons to go into war. Yes. Yes. Th that has been true always. Yeah, and one, it's of still the true. one of the problems in Nazi Except Germany in the nineteen thirties. One of the one of the problems in Nazi Germany in nineteen thirty was a lack of men because the men had died during the First World War. That's exactly why Germany became so vulnerable. Germany was run by fake fellows, a eunuch called Adolf Hitler, and Adolf Hitler's picture was in every German home, preparing German women for replacing the lack of men in their home with Adolf Hitler, who then took the phallic role. He took the role of leadership towards women. Any Thing he would say on the radio was true. So the mothers in Germany tragically taught their sons by the radio that what this man is saying, he's your father. He's the voice of the fatherland. So what he says is something you have to follow as a man. So you have to be, join his army and walk out there and start killing the rest of the world. So it's an incredibly dangerous state to, to, to arrive at because the phallic has to exist somewhere. And the tragedy of a society is that if it, it's ruled by the fake phallic, by the fake phallus, which unites people around an abject of hatred. Well, hey, Hitler and the Jew. The Jew was the excuse to unite the German people and by hating the Jew, they should be unified until every Jew was killed when they had to look for somebody else to kill. Yeah. Because they could only operate Nazism through objection. And the tragedy was that Stalin did the same thing in Russia. He went after the Kulaks. He pointed somebody out and said that we should kill these people because they are the, the, the they are why we are victims today. The, the, they are the excuse for, for our victimhood. So if we only kill them, we're unified. So we have to go after them. And then, of course, Stalin Hitler made the German and the Russian each other's abducts too. And war could just perpetually go on. These are what fake fallacies do, and they're incredibly dangerous. It's not men in themselves, but it's men ruled by fake fallacies and women supplying the energies to that system. That is the most dangerous state we can arrive at. And we had two nasty examples of that in Europe in the 20th century. But an authentic fallacy, like Moses leading the Israelites to the promised land, that means he doesn't unify the people through the abject. He unifies the people through the fetish. And the fetish is the totem pole, the points in the direction we should go. It's not about hating something. It's about loving an idea. So Moses then led the Israelites. He didn't discuss whether you want to follow me or not. He just, those who go with me are with me. They're my people. And then he walks all the way into the promised land. He, of course, dies before the entry. And the priest, his brother Aaron, enters the country with the people. A new king is appointed now when they're inside the promised land. And... Of the 12 tribes, 11 of them are given territory yes. to be responsible, meaning tribes. The 12th one is, is the shamanic caste. Yes. It's always about 5% of the population. They're the Levites. And essentially it turns that into one of, one, of the, one of the tribes. This is the tribe for all of them, meaning the Levites' focus is on the outer border of the entire kingdom. And that is the role of the priest. That's exactly why the priest is always the furthest away from the inner circuit, the furthest away from women and what they're up to in the inner circuit. He's the furthest away from the village. He's at the very border of the tribe itself and is leading the army. And his job is to first step in and to check through diplomacy if you can arrive at a peace settlement with the next tribe. If that is impossible because the pressure is too strong from inside territory, then that's going to lead to war. So how do we relate this to Sweden today? Because Sweden today is a country that doesn't really even have a fake phallus. No, it has no phallus at all. No. That means the phallus will be replaced with an idea that's incredibly dangerous. In our case, it is also, it is also the matriarch is also lacking. Where are the stronger, wiser women who could stand up today in Sweden and defend classical feminism? I know Pietro Stegen, a few women out there trying to do it, but it's a really, really weak matriarchy. And they hate Thatcher in Sweden for really strange reasons. And I think so. this relates back also to what happened in Sweden during the war and or right, right after the war, when we created this huge hole in our culture. Because we used to have a, 
I mean, we were influenced by Germany, and we had our own ideology. Uh, ideologues as well. We were yeah. a deeply racist country. With a, we were a messi- uh, Swedes were a messi- messianic people, just mm-hmm. like Jews, yeah. uh, to sp- to spread a message in the world, uh, the Aryan ideal at mm. that time. Mm. But then we had to sort of get rid of all that, and we had to fill it with something. Yes. And then they started filling it first with multiculturalism. Yeah. Yes. And then with gender feminism. Uh, multiculturalism is daycare center. It is kindergarten right away. We're all going to live a lovely little mushy place and sing songs with different lyrics from different countries and be really, really international. It's like, it's like a youth camp, right? Yeah. And we're all going to live together like this and somehow everything will be supplied for us. Magically, it will just be there. The tit will just be there for us. It's exactly what it is. It is an infantile dream and a really dangerous one too. And Sweden was able to pursue that dream because we had been selling weapons to both sides during the war. We've, we hadn't been bombed or invaded, so and all our one, infrastructure was... And there was one place where the phallic still operated and still operates today. It's in Swedish export industry. Men who are men in Sweden escape from where they, you know, they can be pointed out, so they can be attacked. What they do escape into is the Swedish export industry. It's, it's, exactly, it's highly efficient. And when it comes to capitalism in Sweden, Sweden is a, is a, is a wonderful capitalistic country that has an incredibly successful export industry, IKEA, you know, H&M, whatever you call it. But all these brands that sell around the world and export frequently are run by and operated by men who had visions, at least had visions in the past. So that was really successful. What I'm seeing now is a weakness even in that department. So if, if that area becomes really weak, then we have a problem. But my hope for Sweden and the area where men really dominate in Sweden more than anywhere else is in the world of technology. If you look at the tech startup scene in Stockholm, it's thriving. And it already has several you know, global trendsetters like Spotify, huge success stories globally. They are, of course, visions provided by men who then work really fiercely to, to achieve their goals which is exactly the way you operate an army or a hunting team. And they are successful. And they basically provide whatever milk is left in the state tit in Sweden. It comes from the successful export industry. They're, they're being taxed, and that's where the resources come into the system that still maintains a nanny state. But it's not going to run forever. I mean, the nanny state is going to get really weakened. We have to go into a low-tax economy rather than a high-tax economy sooner or later. And the Swedish politicians are not preparing us for this at all. Yes, because a lot of people think... maintaining the magical fantasy of the eternal tit. Yes, but because a lot of people think that Sweden is a socialist country uh, elsewhere in the world. But we're not really. We're a cooperativist country. So which, we are. Which is more like a kibbutz, really. We, 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 we have a huge deal of uh, resource allocation within the system, but outwards in the world we act as a perfectly capitalist entity. Well, the feminists in Sweden are perfectly happy that you have these really successful export industry companies because they provide resources to the feminists. So they both milk these companies for resources to their projects through taxation, and they also blame them for everything they want at any given time. They're after them all the time. So, and, and how it's a co- really nasty place to be in if you run a big export company in Sweden because you're constantly being attacked and questioned everything you do, but they're perfectly happy to tax you. Yeah, and it's very ungrateful. Kind of miraculous that the Swedish feminist can't see that without the food that is brought by the export industry, their tits won't get enough fat to produce milk. I think they see it. They're perfectly happy that it should happen, and they make excuses for it like they're superior to the nasty men who run these export industry companies. And because they're superior, because they're princesses, they should have everything they want. That's a horrible... Well, they, for example, they sit in social media and constantly tax Swedish export industry companies, and they think it's their job to do so. They have the right to do so, although they have themselves never productively contributed in any way to Swedish society. They've only gained from it. They've only gained from by attacking people. Although the Swedish Me Too campaign was a disaster, it only took about two to three months before some women started to point themselves into being Me Too consultants for Swedish companies, where they expect high salaries for running around warning companies that they might go mad about things. It's complete terror. I wanted to ask it's you a bit about terror. this because, because your friends, personal friends, with uh, uh, the Harvey Weinstein of Sweden within quotation marks. Although he wasn't. He, he wasn't. But that is what the Swedish Me Too movement, that's what started the Swedish Me Too movement, was uh, when our Sissi Wallin went out and accused our Fredrik Virtanen, 
uh, yeah. being basically Harvey Weinstein. Supported by a completely mad lawyer called Elisabeth Massey-Fritz, who's a complete nuthead. Yeah. Yes, and, and this story, I haven't read the, the, the reports from the courts, but you have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, the guy was and, completely innocent. Yes, and he, he had been tried and found innocent. By the, by the system, a rule of law is completely innocent. Yes, uh, and yet a few years later, the Me Too campaign starts and Cissi Wallin sees an opportunity. And she's allowed to reign free in the media. This is what exposes the lack of matriarchy among women in Sweden. Because the Swedish Me Too movement was immediately kidnapped by a bunch of young, narcissistic sociopaths. Yes, and I also want to say one more thing, because... What broke the Me Too movement sort of in the United States was the case of Aziz Ansari, where, yeah. where Aziz Ansari, a stand-up comedian, uh, had had a, a not very successful date with someone who actually pursued him, a female, mm -hmm. and she complained that he hadn't uh, asked if she wanted red or white wine, and he had gone down on her, but she, when, when he wanted to have it reciprocated so that she could go down on him, she wouldn't, and then he said, let's just take it easy. And this case in America was like, everyone was, this is crazy, this is yeah. not rape, we, yeah. we, we can't have this. No, but, you but, cannot, but that case you is cannot, very similar yeah. to the Sissi Wallin Fredrik Virtanen case, who actually started the Me Too movement in Sweden. So what broke the Me Too movement in America was the starting point of the Swedish Me Too movement. Yes, that means a girl who goes completely nuts in a female environment, say a narcissistic sociopath like Sissi clearly, uh, who speaks like that among women, nobody will speak against her unless there's an older matriarch there. And I said all along the older matriarch is lacking in Swedish feminism. So the younger potential matriarchs like Petra Östergren and Alice Teodorescu, my heroines out there who does, do speak the truth and understand this is dangerous for women themselves, they are completely bad-mouthed by all other women, constantly attacked by other women, as if they were unfaithful to feminism, right? So they don't see the need for the older matriarch to tell them the truth. So the, 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 the ego of the young woman who is sort of delusional means that she will speak her truth, which is constantly changed according to her interest. She will come with a new story every time. If you look at Sissi Valin's stories about what happened that night with Friedrich Wirtanen, she's changed her story every time. And she's changed her story according to what suited her interest at the time. So her storytelling is really about impressing and having power over other women. She's not interested in truth. Not at all. And this is what happens. So when she speaks her truth to other women, they will not speak up against her. They would just say that, well, that's her story. She's allowed to have her story. And then somebody else says something. And then they say, oh, that's her story. She's allowed to have her story. Well, that might work in a village, at the village square, where it's all about storytelling anyway. But once you go outside of that inner circuit and it's about politics and it's about resources and about the, it's about the future of the entire tribe and the tribe's evolution and survival, it becomes disastrous because you see a narcissistic sociopath sitting there and nobody's allowed to speak up against her. The problem wasn't Cissi Valin herself. The problem was that she and her lawyer were allowed to sit on Swedish television one show after the other, never being questioned. Ever. There wasn't Not an one. older woman or a man or anybody in the room who said, well, how about the facts? What really did happen? How can you prove it? That's how you meet a grown-up woman. She says something, she makes an accusation, you say that, well, you have to take this to the court of law and you better get some damn facts here. And I'm because sorry, otherwise you're just slandering. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but it was so funny to watch the, the, the state television because in Sweden we have state television, it's one of our biggest channels. And the ruled by feminist dogma. Ruled by feminist dogma and also by feminists. Um, so what, what, what you see is it's always the same tableau. It's uh, three upper-middle-class white women mm -hmm. talking about the lack of feminism mm -hmm. in our media, our culture, our politics. And everywhere you look as a young man in this country, you look mm -hmm. in the papers, you look in, on TV. There's nothing with feminism. Th th there's no men. No. They're all women. Yeah. And they're all discussing how horrible the patriarchy is. Yeah. And all these women have more power than me. Yeah. They have more money than me. Yeah. Yeah. And people listen to them. And they're good and wonderful. Yes, they, they are. They never also. ever question their motives. They never question or discuss their own shadows at all. No, which makes them non-credible, completely non-credible. It's storytelling again. It's just, it's just fantasy. So, what is the female shadow then? 
The female shadow is to not understand the difference between the older matriarch and the other woman. To not understand the difference between truth and fiction. Uh, meaning you have a fiction about yourself and then you turn yourself into a good little princess. So you don't even have truth about yourself. You haven't integrated your own truth. You haven't integrated your own drives and desires, your own animalistic side. So the animal inside of you, the female animal inside of you, is not recognized at so all. So let's say you're... You, 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 let's you say really you're, believe you're this little princess in the fairy tale and nothing else is allowed to be attached to you. So, that, so, 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 so you even lie about yourself. So, so let's say you're a young Swedish princess. And you see a perfect example of a man, and, and you start feeling the juices flowing to your uh, lady parts. Yeah. Yes. And then you pursue him, and you have sex with him, but then you realize he doesn't really want you. Well, the thing is, that from the very beginning, you only saw a biologically perfect man. A, a young woman today in Sweden is trained to think of all men as a surface towards they, which they should attach guilt. That means the minute you meet a woman, a young woman, she is trained to attach guilt to you, that she can use at any given time. She's not interested in a solution. She's not interested in forgiveness for you. She's interested in attaching a guilt to you that can never be overcome. The perfect example of this was Oprah Winfrey's speech at the Golden Globe Awards. It was one of the most hypocritical speeches ever. It stank, right? Oprah Winfrey used to be the defender of female empowerment, has suddenly turned herself into the defender of female victimhood. And what she said during the speech was that, Let's make sure we create a society where no woman ever have to meet to a man ever again. Well, fat chance that's going to happen. What she meant was that let's attach the Me Too logo to every relationship in our society and thereby introduce the feminist dogma as a totalitarian ideology, meaning that any woman, whenever she wants a man to do whatever she wants him to do, can just say Me Too against him and accuse him of being Me Too. At any given time, for anything. So how do you defend yourself against that? You can't. You can't? You can't even get out of it. You're an older bisexual man. You, I don't sh you should be able to get I away with this. I don't take part in the game. I'm a priest. That's why they hate me. I don't buy into it. I don't make myself vulnerable in that way. I don't let a woman ever have access to me by putting the guilt on me. I'm just completely shameless and non-guilty in what I do. I can deal with my own shadow and I have brothers that can deal with my own shadow. I can deal with them between men. Women cannot access me. But I knew all along that I had to live in a sort of life world where women cannot access me in that sense. And that's where women slowly begin to respect me. There's something about me and the way I speak the truth that they don't see in other men. But they biologically really want from other men. They just don't know it. So they can't access me that way. Because I see how feminism, contemporary feminism works. It's not interested in truth. It's interested in creating an ongoing eternal motor where women can attack men at any given time for anything they want. And that is incredibly destructive. If you start looking at culture without words, for example, if you look at black American culture, most black American fathers or men, you know, at the age of fatherhood are locked up in prison, at least like 30% of them. There's a huge vacuum there. That vacuum is filled by grandmothers who take the role of fostering young men. The problem with the grandmother fostering young men is that no matter how well-intended she is, but it is that she will foster them the way she fosters daughters. She will foster them through morality. She will foster them with a fairy tale about good and evil and try to approach him by, you have to be a good boy rather than an evil boy which is like a female Sunday school teacher trying to, you know, control an adolescent man. It doesn't work. What the boy then discovers is there's something fundamentally wrong with this. I cannot imitate this woman because she's a woman. She's a grandmother. I have to have an older father I can imitate. That's how a boy becomes a man. He imitates. Imitation is incredibly important towards shaping men into truth-finding young men and then go through a rite of passage and finally become men. So... The grandmother will only go after him all the time and tell him what a bad boy he is. Something is fundamentally wrong with that. Maybe he isn't such a bad boy after all. Maybe she just doesn't see him. So he will then start operating in gangs of other young men outside of her. That is then the birth of the criminal gang. That's precisely in environments where you have very few men around who can play the role of the fathers you will move young men into criminality. They will either castrate themselves and become completely, you know, effeminate men, like very often happens in Sweden, or they will go into criminality, which is what, for example, immigrant boys do in Sweden where they don't have men that they can imitate. So if you don't have the father to imitate, and you go into dollars with that huge masculine sex drive that you have, 
You will go into criminality, and you will even start raping girls in gangs eventually. And that's that how wrong it goes. And this and is that the has happened though. here in Sweden. Yes. So I'm not accusing the grandmothers. They do their best. But you cannot raise a young man through a grandmother. A grandmother is raising the young girls and keeping them from going cocky, castrating them. That's what Freud calls it, castrating. So they can become full, grown-up, responsible women. But you need the grandfather and then the father for the young man to eventually one day become a man. And any culture where matriarchy takes over over patriarchy, matriarchy moves into the patriarchy, where the inner circuit moves into the outer circuit, where you have a lack of strong men who can stand up against the strong women, becomes a very destructive culture. It becomes a culture of circulation. You never improve on anything. Dare I say Roma culture in Europe here? I'm not being a racist. I'm just discussing we have a culture that never seems to lift itself. Well, it doesn't even have a vision of itself that it can lift itself because it's controlled by older women. And older women will be focused on circulation because that's how you operate the inner circuit. That's how you operate reproduction at maximum capacity. It's just like if you focus on reproduction, you go into the modal circulation. This is also the tragedy of India in the sense that India went to polytheistic religion with women at the forefront and circulation at the forefront. As soon as you put reincarnation with, yes. into a religion, nothing will happen. It will never lift itself above that because it will hate utopian visions. And without utopian visions, you never lift yourself. You never have direction towards. We're going to create a better society than what we have right now. And we're going to take everybody with us. The heroic is in the phallic mode. It is in the outer circuit. The hunting team get better and better hunting constantly. They get better and better warfare. They constantly improve on things. They build better and better buildings. They improve on things. They create civilization, essentially. That is in the phallic. That is in the outer circuit. And if that is lacking, it's disconnected from the inner circuit, the inner circuit starts expanding and it's taking over other territories. And as soon as you have a society where the grandmother starts controlling adolescent men, you're in for disaster. Those adolescent men will have a misdirected testosterone drive in them, misdirected masculine sex drive that goes into terrorism, that goes into terror and goes into violence. The anarchists in Europe in the 19th century, the Islamists in the late 20th and early 21st century in the Middle East, tons of men without direction, young men with no work, no contributive role, oil money going through the economy, corrupting it everywhere. A hugely sexually repressive system. So exactly. And that's exactly when you get the problems you have within that system. And, and that's why the combination of Islam and oil was a big disaster. How and so? I, I bet How it, so? I bet it is the grandmother behind the burqa inside the home who controls the dollars and men if no older men out there control them. The fact that your father suddenly is just living on oil money, is going fat. He's not working any longer. He gets a benefit from the state. I mean, if you want a citizen salary, just go to Saudi Arabia and see what a fucking disaster it is. That is incredibly dangerous. But if your father is just a fat man walking around over there, getting somehow trickling corruption money from the oil economy into his pocket so he doesn't have to work, that's not a lot to imitate if you're a young man, is it? No, it's not. And we no, can really... it's going to turn you into terrorists, isn't it? Because your, your, your energy, your drive is going to go off in the best possible opposite direction of imitating your father you could possibly find. Excellent. Excellent. And I want to bring you back down to earth now because uh, this has happened in Sweden. We've exported a lot of people to Islamic terrorism. Yeah. Second generation immigrants to Sweden. And no, no wonder because what they see in Sweden is certainly not something they can imitate instead. So if they arrive in Sweden because they didn't have a father or father figures to imitate where they grew up and they arrive in Sweden, there are no men at all. It's not like they can imitate Swedish men all of a sudden, which they probably would like to. They you, you think? They see a completely effeminate culture. They see a culture devoid of phallic energy that is disrespectful of the phallic, that disrespectful of utopian visions. We're not allowed to speak of utopian visions for the future. You're not even allowed to be heroic. You're trained to think of yourself as a victim. In a way, it's even a healthy reaction in a way to at least then go for anything because you'd rather go for a fake phallus like an Islamist terror sect, which is run by this macho guy who's not so much after all. I mean, al-Baghdadi is just an Adolf Hitler, yeah. a fake phallus, okay? But you're in, as a man, you're programmed to rather go for the fake phallus than to go for no phallus at all. Because if you stay in an environment where phalluses are banned, that means you're banned. That's a culture of self-hatred. Yeah. 
And I can understand Arab men who arrive in Sweden and are, you know, absolutely disgusted with what they see. The only men that exist in Sweden are, you know, within commercial enterprise at the very end, at the very top of the export industry. And the Arab men who arrive in Sweden have no connection to the patriarchy that is left and still functioning in our society. All they see is this sort of media version of women everywhere who talk down men constantly. Well, they're certainly included in, 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 in that hatred. So self-hatred. So it's a reaction Se against the cultural self-hatred. Self yeah. Where does it come from, self-hatred? I mean, for me, looking at Sweden, having grown up here, it has to do with the war. For me, that's just the most obvious thing I can think of. The origin of self-hatred is the lack of a patriarch or a matriarch. The patriarch is tough with you if you're a young man. He cuts you down to size. He will create ceremonies for you during your adolescence that cuts you down to size so you finally one day understand that you're here to serve the community. And the last thing that he does at the right to pass is that you're now one of the grown-up men, but you still understand nothing. You better follow my orders. So you have to submit yourself to the wisdom of the patriarchy. The matriarchy should work exactly the same way. You have to make the young girl go through her adolescence and then be cut down to size to serve the matriarchy. Meaning that you go through rite of passage, you acknowledge as a grown-up woman, meaning you're ready for sex. You're ready to give birth to children. You're ready to be honored as one of the daughters of the tribe who's a mother of children. Meaning you get tons of purpose as a young woman. And you're protected by the matriarch. She will negotiate on your behalf against the patriarch. She will make sure you're not raped or sexually abused or sexually harassed by the men. She will make sure that the men will come to you during the sexual ritual under the matriarch's control. The matriarchy controls sexuality. These women are obsessed with controlling sexuality. That's why they're so moralistic about it. And that's why they, they freak out when sexuality arrives in all kinds of places throughout society and it's not contained. Because the female sexuality is that I want safety and protection first, then I'm ready to go all the way, which is perfectly understandable. That's how female sexuality should work. This is what young women deserve. But if the matriarchy is not there, then there's nobody there to also acknowledge to you that you have value. We go to what we call the phallic gaze for recognition. And the phallic gaze is both the matriarch and the patriarch. is either coming from the men who you follow during the army, or it comes directly from the elderly. The phallic case is a look that looks at you and recognizes that even in the world of reality, not in the world of fantasy, but in the world of reality, you are loved. You're functional. You can contribute. You can survive. The, the magical love is the love we have during the first year of our life. It's the unconditional love that comes from the mother's body, that comes from being born out of the matrix, that comes from trusting the mamela and sucking the tit. So this complete comfort It's unconditional. You're loved no matter what. You're also loved no matter what happens to you. You're loved no matter what you do. It's the love of the fairy tale and the love of the first year. So it's real during the first year of life. But after the phallic intrusion, after the phallus steps in, after we have to leave the tit and become autonomous human beings and children, so our life world is in between the mammal and the phallus and we start playing and we start imitating the grown-ups to one day become grown-ups and we have this urge inside of us and we want to be grown-ups one day. During that period, we go into that, we also experience something that I find incredibly attractive. That's the phallic love. And the phallic love is a love that says that, isn't reality way more interesting than the stupid fairy tale you've been told next to the tit? Yeah. Because reality is what we grown-ups live in. And it's tough. And it's challenging. But we get autonomy and we get responsibility from it. So we are real grown-ups with grown-up genital organs who can really start enjoying life fully. We live in pleasure, and we live in autonomy, and we live in responsibility. And all those things are tied together into the package of being a grown-up. So you decide to want to be a grown-up, and once you become a grown-up, you decide to want to maybe be in the position of being an elderly, being appointed a patriarch and a matriarch. So that's the next step afterwards. But Alexander, we have created a society which fucking hates autonomy. And it doesn't hate, want to give you any responsibility at all. People, this is what happens. If you don't have the phallic gaze, you long for it so much. And if, you, you know, if you're not even taught that you should desire the phallic gaze, you should desire the approval. Because what we did in the tribe was that at the rite of passage, you were approved by the grown-ups. And most of all, you were approved by the patriarch or the matriarch. And that approval meant you were fit to survive. Because what we did with children who didn't grow up and become grown-ups, we left them in the wilderness to die. 
The cruelty, the necessary cruelty of the tribe was that you could give children as much unconditional love as you wanted. But if you weren't fit to move from a child to a grown-up when the time had come, we had invested possibly 18 or 19 years in your life, fed you constantly, taught you everything. You know, the investment was intense, was really expensive. And if you arrived at a point where you were so infantile that you weren't fit to be a grown-up, we had to leave you. We had to leave you in the wilderness. So you were scared of that. You were literally scared of that during your childhood. You knew that if you didn't move into the grown-up sphere when the time had come, you were useless. You were warned of that. So how and do that we recreate that in to. a modern Western world? It promised you you can stay at the tit your entire life, although you're a grown-up physically. So there's a mismatch between your biology, which now moves into the grown-up, your sexual organs and sexuality is confused, and it still teaches you no matter what, we're going to give you a citizen salary, or we're going to pay you our tax money, or we're going to give you anything you want at any given time. You don't have to do anything in return. You don't have long. You no longer have a contributed role because if we don't have a contributed role, we kill ourselves. Now, women have, you know, they have a shorter route to that purpose. They can just give birth to a child. Yes. As soon as a female body gives birth to a child, it communicates to the female brain you now have a contributed role. So all you need to do with the right to pass as a woman, you actually had a cheaper route because basically it was that if I just get pregnant, I'm fine. That's what women are trained to think that socially they're not accepted unless they give birth to children. Or they better have a job where they supply something to women who give birth to children. So if you indirectly support child rearing, you're fine as a woman. That's exactly how women go into caring, they go into anything, or they become teachers, they go into anything where they also train the children. It's it's this group of mothers who train the children. But if you're not involved with that as a woman, you have a really bad time with the other women. Okay? For men, there's no such role given. You right. don't get a purpose. You need to find your damn purpose. So you need to go to your brothers. You need to go to other men and say, what am I good at? In what way can I contribute? And if you find that purpose, you're, you're so relieved. Because you can love yourself for being phallic, for being a grown-up, for being a man, for listening to and learning from the elderly, from being able to father sons and father daughters together with other men. And for also being a part of the hunting team, for being a warrior, for being all those things that the outer circuit takes care of, for building buildings, you know, yes. all those things that men do. And you need to find that purpose. And the problem today is that young men do not find the purpose at all, whereas a lot of women do find their purpose because they go into some form of child rearing and being part of that process. And also we have a huge welfare state where you could actually find such work. Basically, it's what the work that used to be done in the home is now paid for and supplied by the state. Yeah, and it is work. It's just that you no, were no, paid it for is. before. It is no, work. It, uh, so for saying, a woman yeah. that's honorable and she feels that I'm getting paid for something I do. I'm a teacher. I'm a doctor. I'm anything else that takes part of the caring of the tribe. And women do that well. Yes. And but, they get paid uh, but, for it. But, but, but they, also, don't see, they don't see that young men now, don't find that purpose. But and they that's don't get dangerous. that money now from their husband. They get it from the state, the ultimate husband-mother. The, 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 the replacement of the matriarch. Of the replacement of the matriarch, yeah. yeah. Because the matriarch gets her money from the men by taxing them. Yes. So the matriarch becomes the matriar matrical state, which is what the state is. But the problem is not women really here. The problem is in the weakness of men. And a young man who can't find purpose means he cannot orientate himself. What, a good way of finding him is that he probably goes to nightclub when he's drunk and tries to find recognition from women. And women hate that. Yeah. They hate the guy who's needy. They hate him. And, and he's everywhere now in nightclubs. And that's exactly what women can go around proudly with the noses in the air and say, oh, these disgusting men everywhere. They try to chase me all the time when they're drunk. Well, that's because patriarchy has failed on that part. And women are partly responsible for that. Because if a young man doesn't find his purpose, which he needs to get from other men, you go to the elderly and you ask them, what can I do? Give me a damn job. Give me a role where I contribute because otherwise I go crazy. And if a man, young man goes crazy because he lacks purpose, if he's running around in those nightclubs trying to find recognition from men, he's completely confused about what he's doing because everything he's doing is in the wrong place. But he's still looking for that purpose. And what either happens is he will go aggressive, openly aggressive. That's why we have criminal gangs. That's where you get terror sects. That's where little guys sit at home, reading the internet, building bombs. Or they go into a digestion state. They go into a state where they do nothing at all. They play computer games. They take tons of drugs. They hate themselves. And at least they're not openly dangerous to society, but they kill themselves eventually in that process. They become alcoholics, essentially. 
They become useless men to marry. A lot of young feminists think they should marry these men because they can control them. They marry them. Sex life is awful. And finally, one day when the woman is around 30 years old, she comes home and she sees a pathetic man sitting there with no friends, no purpose. And he thinks this woman he's married to is his best friend. She has a rich social life outside of the home and she just hates him and she divorces him. In Sweden today, if you look at divorces, that happens to people between 25 and 35 years of age, which when women decide on where they're going with their lives, when they decide whether they're going to have children or not. 90 to 95% of divorces between 25 and 35 are women leaving their husbands unseen in any other culture. Yeah, and we now have a, at and least a 70% divorce rate here in Sweden. Yes, we do. And I understand the women because they married the wrong guy in the first place. They married somebody they thought they should control because feminists have thought that the men should be castrated and sit at home and wait for her wife to come home. What feminists hasn't taught them is that they get terribly bored with this guy and he's terrible in bed and they deserve better. Yeah. They're marrying a failed man. They should marry a real man. But the real man isn't there because that has become dysfunctional society. There are some real men out there. They're probably working with technology. They're probably doing a real career. They go to the gym, they see themselves fit, and they are rare. So they can pick any wife they want for that matter if they want to. They're doing fine. They are the Swedish upper class today. They do fine. But the vast majority of men, especially men coming out of the lower middle class and working class men today in Sweden, are now going straight into the new digital underclass that we call the consumptariat. They have few friends. They have a very poor social life. There's a lot of computer games. And eventually they go into alcohol and drugs at best, because at worst they go into criminal gangs instead and cause a lot of havoc. That's what happens to castrated men. So if you castrate men on this level that we're doing right now in Sweden, it's going to become very, very dangerous and a tragedy. And it, I think, has already happened. We see the numbers already. We have a still male-dominated upper class, very much driven by technology and the export industry, where the functioning patriarchy still exists in Swedish society. They've left politics. They left anywhere where women are at. They leave that. They're on their own in, in milieus where men are, are dominating men are in the majority. So they yeah. can control that at least. And they just still happily pay taxes to a feminist state just to get rid of the problem and still do what they do. But the men are at the top there. The male-dominated underclass. And a lot of women are moving in there too through the traditional career paths. Women go into law. They go into finance. They go into medicine. Women are not risk takers. So they go into anything that used to be established. When it comes to the new establishment technology, women are very weak. Yes. They're not even there. So that's why there will still be a patriarchy in society, but it will basically be focused on itself. It will no longer take social responsibility for the world outside because as soon as a man has been successful in the export industry in Sweden wants to become a politician, he's attacked by all the feminist industry. So why would he even go there? He's really needed, but he won't be there. So you only have weak men in politics. You don't have strong men in politics. You don't, you don't have any strong male patriarchal leaders in politics who take, can take responsibility both for men and women. You don't have them there. They're scared off. Uh, well, we have Hanif Bali. Well, he's, he's an outsider. He comes yes. from a different culture. Yes. That's exactly why he's there. If he would have been Swedish from the very start, he'd never gone into politics. No way. He would have been a successful commercial entrepreneur today. Y yes, he would. And yes. also because that's what he used to do before he became a politician. He used to program computers. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> so he's in tech. No, I'm really grateful he's there. He's a future leader, absolutely. And I hope he, I hope he stays the course and I want to support him everything he does. Because he's really, really rare. Yes. Elon Sadi is another guy who comes in from, from, you know, a different angle, and that's exactly why he's smart enough not to take it in. He understands the bigger picture. We have these young guys out there that we have a lot of hope for because we need them in politics. But you then get a really female-dominated middle class, yes. which is where you have Sweden today. Because women do get work, and they work somehow, you know, in the public sector, and they basically run it. And they make sure that money, you know, money falling in from the state, you know, being distributed from the state to whatever professions they have to make sure that happens. So they're getting supported. They're there. And they, they also train themselves to think that if I have to, I will raise my children without any men at all. It will give them more power and influence. I'm willing to pay that price. Willing to pay? The government pays for it by now. It does. So they don't have that problem at all. Yeah. The old matriarch taxes the men, meaning the old matriarch is the state then paying them. Yes. But the, the old matriarch does not hold them accountable for paying them, which, which a real matriarch would do. This is the problem with the state. The state does not hold anybody accountable for, for what you pay them. So this is the problem. That's why young women today are confused. They don't have an older woman to stand up against. Thank you for listening. 
My name is Aaron Flam. The man who made your brain sparkle is Alexander Bard. Alexander can be found on Facebook and Twitter, and his contacts are linked on the Patreon page where this episode is published. You can also read more of Alexander. Together with Jan Söderqvist, he has written several books ranging from The Netocrats in 2000 to Synthism in 2014, where they found a new religion for the age of information technology. My name is Aaron Flam, and I can also be followed on Twitter, Instagram, and in 25 days or so, Facebook, but mostly on my webpage www.aaronflam.com and in the podcast Deconstructive Critique. One of the coming episodes will be more about the Swedish election in English with Jens Gahnman, the censored YouTube satirist I mentioned earlier. This podcast can be supported on Patreon, still waiting for iTunes to approve our RSS feed, but Until then, you can always support this podcast on Patreon. Just look up The Aryan and the Jew. Or if you live in Sweden, you can swish us at 076-894-3737. 076-894-3737. Until next time, have a great week.